Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Patient Ping. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name's Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We do have some interactive features, namely today we're going to be doing the questions and comments. So you can go ahead and send those in as they occur to you. We'll take them later in the program. Leave the default set to all panelists when you send them in. And like I said, we look forward to it and we will get to them later. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, first we're going to go about 30 minutes hearing from Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform. Then we're going to hear from Sagnik Bhattacharya, head of product with Patient Ping, and then we'll have our Q&A. So without any further delay, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. John Halamka. Dr. Halamka, thanks for joining us. Well, a pleasure to be here, Anthony, and just want to make sure you can hear me okay. I can. You sound great. Thank you. Well, so I'm doing this presentation from Rochester, Minnesota today, and joined by a couple of my colleagues uh, with Mayo Clinic, and as uh, Anthony has said, is that after 25 years at Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Leahy Health, I am transitioning in January 1 over to Mayo. And so, of course, I will continue to watch all our evolving HIT policies and be working on some exciting new technology platform innovations. So today we're going to be talking about what are the five critical HIT policy efforts you need to know about. And remember, Anthony, oh, what I do is I spend my evenings reading thousands of pages of CMS, <laughs> ONC, and HHS uh, regulations and proposed regulations so that you don't have to. And today we're going to go through about 3,000 pages of regulations. And those five areas are going to be just a quick update on the Medicare and Medicaid services interoperability rule. And that has, of course, got many positive points, but also some controversy the Office of National Coordinator Information Blocking Rule, and then since Sequoia has been named now this a very appropriate um, coordinating entity for the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement, what you're going to see as next steps in that area, and what will Sequoia do. Uh, we'll go through the HHS report on provider burden and strategies. And certainly we know that many clinicians have felt that after the Meaningful Use Era and promoting interoperability program, that administrative burden is high. And so there's a lot of attention to what do we do to reduce that burden. And, you know, Anthony, i got a lot of detail for you on that one because there are a number of strategies proposed. And then we'll Looking talk about Stark and anti-kickback. Yeah, Stark and anti-kickback reform is so critical. Because remember in the Meaningful Use Era, we found that practices couldn't afford EHRs, and so there was a safe harbor where surrounding hospitals could help those practices adopt technology, and that was something many of us used to its greatest extent possible. Well, now that we're moving to value-based care and coordinated care in a community, we really need to think about how self-referral and anti-kickback should be relaxed for appropriate care coordination and, and technology implementation, so some detail there. So let us go ahead and go uh, to the next slide on the CMS proposed rule. So remember the CMS proposed rule is all about encouraging uh, interoperability and filling some of the gaps that came out of meaningful use. And having been on the HIT standards committee and the policy uh, committees and all those various meetings, that some of the gaps we left were things like, you must share data with the clinicians who are part of patient care coordination, but we gave you no directory. It would be a bit like saying, you must call your friends, there's no white pages, if anyone's old enough to remember what the white pages were. <laughs> and, and so CMS will be, will be pre uh, preparing for the country a set of electronic routing addresses for individual providers, departments, and care entities so that you'll be able to do care coordination and understand electronically how to reach that endpoint. And then importantly, CMS has to ask, how do you get participation, carrot or stick? And although we had a fair amount of stimulus back in the meaningful use era, today it's really a stick, and that is public humiliation 
a list of non-participants and those who have failed to provide addresses. This next point is slightly controversial. For those of us who work in accountable care organizations, we need to send admit, discharge, and transfer information around a community to understand where our patients are seeking their care. Because it could very well be they're in a skilled nursing facility that's not part of your network, and you can't control the quality or expense in that facility, you'd like to move them. So it's an important idea. But here's the problem. If we are to send electronic admit, discharge, transfer notifications to all interested parties, how do we know who the interested parties are? And let's just use an example from Boston. So imagine that Beth Israel Deaconess has one provider of ADT routing, Mass General has another provider of routing, and Steward Healthcare has another provider of routing. Well, we're not requiring every provider to belong to one routing company. So you've got three different companies. How do they talk to each other? If a patient's admitted, how do you route the message if there are three different connections? Asking every provider to route three different ways is really not scalable. So we have to think through this as a country, if we're going to require it. In the state of Massachusetts, we have come up with a strategy, and basically that strategy sounds something like this. I decide to use a certain company. That company takes the responsibility to notify other like companies that there is a message to be routed. And if those other like companies know who the patient is, they route. And if they don't, they throw it away. And the attorneys in Massachusetts have opined that, in fact, all you're doing is sending an ADT message to the border of a routing company. They look at it and say, we don't know who that patient is, throw it away. You haven't even had a HIPAA event. No information has actually been transacted, and certainly it won't be stored. So it's all okay from a privacy perspective. So anyway, I only just mention this controversy because when you look at the pushback on ADT notifications, there's this just awareness of figuring out who to route to and how can still be complicated. Now, of course, we also know that we need to be able to match our patients and name gender date of birth doesn't work so well. And so are we going to have a national healthcare ID? Unlikely. But can we articulate a national strategy for figuring out how to match patients that could involve biometrics or not healthcare data? The car you own, the, the property tax you've paid. We need a strategy, and there's a lot of, group, of activity in both government and industry thinking through that. And then finally, we want to make sure that some of the players that we've not included in meaningful use and that is the LTPAC, those long-term post-acute care providers, behavioral health providers, and certain community services organizations are now brought into the interoperability fold. Because especially we know behavioral health is a crisis in the U.S. today, and it is very important that their data, medical data, behavioral health data, is shared appropriately with all providers. So that's the CMS proposed rule. It probably, you know, I'm just guessing, this is prognostication, Anthony, is that it's an OMB clearance now, I hear, and so presumably we'll see this as a final rule in 2020. Let's go to the next slide. The ONC proposed rule, and again, this is goodness. We all love APIs. We all love the idea of sharing patient data appropriately while protecting privacy for care coordination and innovation, but how to do this in a way that ensures data integrity and trust is still a work in process. So the idea of the ONC proposed rule is that there must be an API for every provider and, in, and every healthcare uh, hospital and, and delivery organization and that the vendors cannot charge fees, transaction fees, for the use of that API, although there are certain fees that can be charged that cover development costs and recoup them from their, for their technical effort. Now, the idea here is that patients will come to the front door of a provider or hospital and say, I would like my own data. And the provider organizations 
if the patient asks for their data, must provide that data at no cost in real time. And I think this is a wonderful, wonderful idea. The challenge is, how do we know the app the patient has brought to us is trustworthy? Uh, I mean, do we give to every patient the burden of reading the end user license agreement? Because what if that end user license agreement says, we're going to share your data in all kinds of ways? Well, did you understand that? Is it informed consent? The pushback really on this one is, love the API, love the patient access to data, just how do you ensure privacy is protected, and don't burden every single potential patient with having to read complex end-user license language. And of course, the whole notion of this is to encourage interoperability where technical and policy enablers have been created, but there's still reluctance to share because of competitive issues or potential intellectual property issues. How do we get beyond these what I call psychiatry issues? And this rule will do that. It also, I hear, is an OMB clearance. So we should see a revised final rule in 2020. So let's go to the next slide on TEFCA. And you know, Anthony, I really have to apologize for the sheer number of acronyms. But this is, unfortunately, when you read the Federal Register, what you have to deal with. So folks remember back in the day, and remember I've been working on this since the George W. Bush administration. We created in, uh, with David Brailer in the Bush administration, the Nationwide Health Information Network and the eHealth Exchange. And this was the earliest idea of a network of networks to exchange data across the country. When AHIC, the American Health Information Community under Michael Levitt was uh, disbanded as the Obama administration began, much of this work was handed off to Sequoia. And Sequoia is a nonprofit public-private partnership that really was the successor to this government-run American Health Information Community. And it was recently selected by the Na Office of the National Coordinator as the coordinator, this recognized coordinating entity for this trusted exchange framework and common agreement set of ideas. And what are those ideas? Although in many countries I visit, there is a single source of data. If you go to a place like Scotland, they have one PAC system or one emergency care system. In the United States, we're never going to have a giant database that is a singular anything. So that is we're going to need a network of networks. And we're going to have wonderful organizations like the Commonwealth Alliance and Care Equality ensuring that we can exchange data. But we need to have rules of the road. What are the data use agreements? How do we ensure that data isn't used for purposes unintended by the patient? What are the technical standards and implementation guides? Where can we, if we find a bad actor, sanction them? So Sequoia has now been charged with taking a number of the ideas that have come out of two versions of the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement and really making sure they can be operationalized and ensuring their common understanding of guidelines, technical and legal requirements. But also, it will develop what I'm guessing will be certification criteria for all the networks that exist as what we call qualified health information networks. So that is a Commonwealth or a care equality would have to demonstrate privacy and security controls and competence and reliability before they would even be allowed to serve as a network exchange agent. So watch this space because you know, Sequoia is the obvious choice and we all know we need to have interoperability between various health information networks and we're going to do this in a centrally coordinated way. So certainly applaud that effort. Let's go to the next slide. Now this is where it gets complicated, Anthony. And I remember this is 800 pages or so that I'm gonna go through. So my five slides aren't so bad. <laughs> Provider burden and strategies. Maybe I start with a preamble of how we got to this situation. As we crafted meaningful use, I ran 200 meetings in the Obama administration. And I was asked to listen to all stakeholders and ensure the needs of all stakeholders were met. 
The FDA said we want device monitoring. CDC said we want epidemiology and emergent outbreak monitoring. CMS said we want quality. And so we crafted regulations that met all those needs. The end result was that clinicians have to enter a vast amount of data at every patient visit to meet all these requirements. And that has actually impacted their capacity to spend time with patients and families. So what happened when 21st Century Cures was, in a bipartisan way, the Cures Act was amended. Meaningful use, or high-tech, um, had a new section called, well, now that we've done all this to our clinicians, we better look back and ask, how do we reduce the burden? How do we ensure that regulatory and administrative requirements are rolled back so they can spend time with patients and families? Part of that is simply reducing the number of data elements and time or building consistent processes so if there is data gathering, it's more automated or delegated. And how do we ensure that the ease of use of our EHRs gets better? Remember, meaningful use was a stimulus program. We had to spend $31 billion in a couple of 18-month sprints so many of our EHR vendors did not have the time to really think about workflow redesign or usability. So if those are the goals, how are we going to achieve it? So next slide, clinical documentation. Now, Anthony, I don't know, do you spend much time in foreign lands, international travel? Uh, I, I don't. Okay, remember I've been in 40 countries this year. And when I've written some articles about this, I've studied the medical record of 40 countries in 2019. On average, the data recorded by U.S.-based clinicians is four times the length of the countries outside the U.S. And you might say, oh, well, that's because our quality is better or that we're being more comprehensive. The reality of it is we record much of this data because of a regulatory requirement or because of CMS rules of, about fraud and abuse. Sometimes it's also because of medical legal defensive medicine. So that means we are burdening our clinicians with a variety of data entry that isn't specifically for the benefit of the patient. And so strategy one is the federal government is going to review what are 30 years of CMS regulations and ask, are these really salient in the modern era because we have other ways of controlling fraud and abuse? That's good. There are also best practices. So sometimes as clinicians, you know, how Clark will ask you, you cut and paste. Or you say, oh my God, no, we're told never cut and paste. Well, it turns out that's actually not the right answer. That you can cut and paste from a previous clinician when it is appropriate to reflect on care that has been given in the past. So that is to say, if we across all of our healthcare delivery organizations say, you know, there are burden reduction strategies that are best practices and not just simply banning, cutting, and pasting. And there was a lot of training and education on that. And then can there be new technologies? I mean, what if, and Anthony, I'll make this up, because I'm not going to show any favoritism toward any vendor. Siri, Alexa, Google Home, pick your ambient listening technology of choice. What if there was a technology where a doctor and patient could have a conversation and the ambient listening device could record the doctor said this, the patient said that, because the doctor is a registered user and the voice is recognized and the patient is not, and the medical record is now a perfect record of what was said in that room and a doctor didn't touch a keyboard. Ah, well that sounds like a burden reduction. And so they're going to look at ordering services, prior authorization processes, figuring out how novel technology innovations can reduce doctor burden. Next slide, usability. Now defining usability, I admit, is quite hard. Uh, and that is, it's very subjective. But how about this? I think we probably know that some of 
the EHR developments supporting meaningful use were simply grafted on to existing workflows, which means you have pop-up windows and redirects and you're jumping from screen to screen. And you know, some clinicians have called this death by a thousand clicks. So potentially there are ways that through private industry innovation with government providing convening services and encouragement, we can rethink some of these EHR user interface experiences. Again, not endorsing any company here, but Anthony, I don't know if you saw a few weeks ago that Google has introduced what it is thinking of an EHR skin that is vendor neutral. It sits mm -hmm. on top of any existent EHR and gives you what Google would consider a Google-like experience, which obviously takes advantage of the latest and greatest mobile technology and search technology and those sorts of things. And so that would be an exemplar of how we make workflow better. And then here's an interesting challenge. Um, I, as a CIO uh, at Beth Israel AE Health, produced over 1,000 quality data submissions per year. And that means that doctors had to record a lot of data purely for no other reason than the generation of quality measures. And wouldn't it be fabulous if every insurance company in the United States decided the quality measures were all the same? Ah, but no. Just in Massachusetts, Harvard Pilgrim, Tufts, and Blue Cross record diabetic care quality measures entirely differently. So shouldn't we promote harmonization of clinical data entry to just, again, reduce the amount of variation and typing that a clinician goes through as they enter a transaction? And shouldn't we have the EHR be a value-added tool rather than just an administrative burden by providing a real-time decision support so that you can make decisions augmented by technology? And then you say, I really value that. It kept me from malpractice, or it ensured the patient got the best of a clinical trial or a cutting-edge therapy. So those are four ideas. Again, government will be convener, private industry will be innovator, and there'll be a lot of communication. Next slide, EHR reporting. And this gets back a little bit to my quality example. When we did meaningful use stage one, and I'm sure some of my colleagues in government may correct me on this, but this was just my feeling at the time. We thought quality measures were extremely important because if we're going to invest $31 billion, we want to make sure we're getting something for that investment. So there were many quality metrics, and they were gathered and they were sent, but it is unclear that they were actually used for anything, meaning the clinicians didn't get feedback or benchmarking. It didn't become part of any reimbursement scheme. And so we would ask ourselves this question, if we're going to require a quality metric, but we aren't going to do anything with it, maybe we actually just don't want to collect that anymore. So you know, how do we simplify various quality metric reporting programs, simplify participation and data gathering requirements. Some of our new evolving standards like the fire standards or the bulk fire standards may also help with that. And we really want to improve the value and usability of these quality measures. So uh, Dr. Otley, who's sitting next to me and I just recently had a call with the Mayo Clinic folks working on quality metrics. And what we all talked about is we want quality metrics to be actionable and meaningful mm -hmm. and impactful to the patient. So let's just focus on reducing provider burden and giving them not just a bunch of data, but actionable wisdom. So CMS will take the lead on much of this activity, and I'm sure you'll see revisions coming out of CMS on quality and EHR reporting. Public health reporting. Well, I think we all know about the opioid crisis. Massachusetts is ground zero for this. Part of uh, effort to reduce the opioid burden on providers and patients is making that prescribing data more universally available through prescription drug monitoring programs, PDMPs, and make those PDMPs integrated into EHR workflow. So that means when I go to write for an opioid, 
I understand where the patient has received previous opioids. I understand best practices for opioid prescribing. I electronically prescribe using two-factor authentication that opioid, and the end result is we control the flow of opioids much better and uh, reduce that public health crisis. And just as with quality measures, on the public health reporting side, remember meaningful use required immunization reporting and syndromic surveillance reporting, and that requires a fair amount of data entry in some cases. So what can we do to harmonize requirements across all our federal agencies to reduce the burden of public health reporting and data entry? So again, great strategy there. So, I mean, let me just summarize, and you can go on to the Stark and Annie kickback for a slide, but what you see in this notion of provider burden is a look back, right? Hindsight's 2020. And I think we all need to ask, we invested $31 billion in EHRs. Where did it help? Where did it hurt? And now how do we revise so that we reduce the bad and increase the good? So I, it's, it's all very much a good role for government. Again, Linnell, let's uh, and then go to the Stark and kickback slide, and we'll, let's talk about the reforms there. And here's just a sort of a quick use case for you. And I'm not going to endorse any company, but one of the entrepreneurs I worked with has a wonderful product that reduces burden, enhances supply chain management, and, gee, if certain organizations want to provide this wonderful value-added service to other organizations and raise the question, is that a kickback? Well, wait a minute. It's reducing cost, improving quality. It's all goodness. And just because one big organization provides it to a smaller organization, I mean, it really isn't a kickback. It's something society should be able to do. So this is good because looking at self-referral in a world of value-based purchasing where we're having more mergers and acquisitions and collaborations and contracting, and any kickback in an era where technology tools can sometimes be afforded by larger organizations and not smaller organizations, but should be promulgated, needs a new look at anti-kickback regulation. Let's go to the next slide on safe harbors. So this is a really thoughtful look at what it is that we should do as a society. We should ask the question, why was Stark even written? Well, okay, let's make up a a use case. If I'm a doctor and I own a lab and I'm getting profit on that lab and I refer all my patients to the lab I own, of course that sounds bad. <laughs> but now let's think of a modern use case. If we as a society decide value-based purchasing is going to replace fee-for-service and that means all of our doctors and hospitals need to work in lockstep, the fact that the doctor who has signed a contract with a hospital to help manage risk is referring to that hospital so that cost can be reduced and quality could be improved isn't a kickback. It isn't a violation of any ethical or moral framework. It's actually just good patient care. And so Stark Safe Harbors will be revised to say where there is a risk contract with global risk and multiple participation in that contract requires care coordination as part of total medical expense reduction. That's not really something that falls under a self-referral issue. And then, of course, we have to define what is risk, that the doctor potentially has upside risk, downside risk, potentially lose money. If suddenly all of your patients are getting total body MRIs, <laughs> it's going to reduce you as a clinician, you know, a pool of money that is at risk. Well, that's something that requires care coordination. So working closely with the hospital to ensure only the right care in the right setting at the right cost is given is all goodness. Next slide. And so CMS has, again, multiple shared risk arrangements. You know, you're probably familiar with MSSP 1 through 2 and 3, and so it's going to provide various flavors of how in such various risk arrangements it will analyze what are appropriate doctor and hospital interactions. And obviously, if there's a very indirect relationship, uh, you know, certainly that is not going to be a violation of self-referral. And there's, of course, a lot of push in the current administration on price transparency. And it'll get pretty clear if you are 
transparent about all costs the patient will incur, and there is a referral that is being done in the context of full tri price transparency, well, then there's comfort that this is not somehow a um, self-referral that is going to benefit in an inappropriate way. So again, nice revision there, building openness, transparency, and providing rules of the road where a doctor and hospital can work together in ways that we would all consider ethical. So now let's go to anti-kickback. And again, this is uh, the point of if in meaningful use, hospitals provided community doctors with EHRs and that was okay, now in a world of, as we talk today, about platform services, AI algorithms, decision support tools, uh, novel workflow enhancements, you know, how do you ensure those can be provided across the community where one entity may pay and another entity may benefit? And so as we think of value-based care arrangements, get total medical expense control and quality improvement, uh, we certainly need to allow entities to buy technology solutions on behalf of other entities and have that not considered a kickback. And so the three areas that are immediately clear is where it's care coordination that improves health, quality, outcomes, and efficiency. I think everyone would agree that seems reasonable. Where there's significant downside financial risk, if a clinician is ordering things inappropriately because it's not a standard of care and another entity helps them with the ordering function so it's a best practice, then that is not a kickback. And with full financial risk, as all the entities in a community are responsible for the wellness of the patient, uh, there's really no sense of a kickback here because we're all doing it for the benefit of the patient. So I know, Emily, that was a huge amount of material with a lot of technical complexity, but watch 2020 for these five areas to have committees and task forces, government convening activities, uh, National Academy of Medicine symposia and publications, ONC, CMS, and HHS will be focusing on those areas. And I really think in an era where sometimes we feel like our country has become very partisan. Everything I've said today is totally bipartisan. And so how about can we end our 2019 HIPT policy update by saying our country is unified in the approach of improving quality while reducing cost and no one is arguing politics. Turning it back to you. Well, what a, what a wonderful note uh, to end your p presentation on, and we look forward to our Q&A. So now we're going to hear first uh, from our sponsor today, Patient Ping, represented by Sognik Bhattacharya, head of product. So, Sognik, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Anthony, and thank you, John. That was, that was really insightful. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to do a quick zoom in on one part of uh, of John's update, which was Within the CMS interoperability rule, there is a provision for uh, hospitals to send e-notifications in the form of ADT messages. Um, so before I do that, a quick uh, you know overview. Uh, so I've, I've been with patient paying for a little over a year now. Prior to that, for many years, I worked on the EHR and population health side uh, with Epic, and about patient paying. So patient paying uh, has been around for uh, about six years. Uh, we are a care co collaboration and coordination platform that uh, tries to connect providers who are servicing the same patients and populations. And the way we do that is we create an ADT network, uh, like the one John just mentioned, um, which collects data from about 1,000 different hospitals, about 5,000 post-acute providers. So these are nursing homes and home health uh, providers. And, and then on top of that network, we, we build a suite of care collaboration tools. So that's a, a quick background on patient ping. Now, getting back to the, the, the topic at hand about the e-notifications rule that's part of the, the CMS interoperability rule, uh, there is a provision that is tied to the Medicare conditions of participation for hospitals, which is a little bit unique compared to the other provisions in the rule. And it would require hospitals who have EHR systems, which is true for uh, most hospitals, 
um, to generate uh, ADT messages upon request from any entity that has a care relationship with a patient. So, for example, if an ACO that is in your neighborhood wants you to, if you are due the hospital to send uh, ADT messages anytime one of their patients shows up in your hospital, whether they're admitted or discharged, uh, you are required to do so. So this would impact uh, all hospitals that have any form of Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement, which is pretty much all hospitals in the country. Uh, but it also includes, at least in, its pro in the proposed rule, all psychiatric hospitals and critical access hospitals as well, uh, which is a little bit interesting and, and unique, especially the psychiatric hospitals piece. Uh, so that's what it, be, what it means for hospitals. On the converse side, if you're a community provider, if you're, an, if you're in some sort of a value-based care arrangement, or if you're a, a skilled nursing facility trying to manage uh, patient readmissions, you are now able to go to your hospital partners and ask them to send you these ADTE notifications anytime one of your patients shows up at the hospital. So that's kind of what the, uh, roughly what the, the rule would imply uh, if it is passed in its current form. Um, now, the, where the rule is at right now, so as John mentioned, it's with the OMB. Uh, so the, the, we expect that rule to be published sometime in early 2020. Uh, but what we have here is essentially trying to interpret the tea leaves based on what the proposed rule says. So obviously, for, for hospitals, this means that first and foremost, they, have to they would have to comply. And uh, in our conversations, what we found is most of the time, the burden of compliance within the hospital would likely fall on the IT and interoperability teams and with the compliance teams being key stakeholders. Um, the e-notifications, these requests, will come from a variety of providers. So some of the most obvious use cases are providers who have some sort of a value-based care arrangement, whether it's full cap or like a Medicare ACO. But there are other use cases as well. So if there are other uh, neighborhood hospitals who who are participating in a BPCI program, so they might require uh, notifications if their, their bundles patients show up at your hospital. Or it could be skilled nursing facilities or FQHCs who are trying to better track their patients. So, so these e-notifications uh, requests could come from a variety of sources to your hospital. And it could be anywhere from tens of these requests to hundreds. Um, then the, so the options for hospitals are, a, number one, uh, create your own internal, uh, um, I guess, solution, which involves generation of ADT messages based on patient rosters that these, these requesters give you, um, and, and do so yourself, which is perfectly fine. Or uh, the rule allows for you to work with an intermediary to service these requests. And uh, CMS expects that the hospitals will uh, ascertain that the, the requesters do have a valid care relationship with the patients for whom they're, they're requesting these uh, notifications. So, so that's kind of a, as you can imagine, that could be a, a lot of work for a hospital team, both on the compliance side as well as on the IT side. So, uh, and the other things that hospitals would need to think about is if you have to set up uh, 40 or 50 uh, ADT interfaces, what does it mean from an IT staffing, as well as any kind of licensing fees uh, that each of those ADT interfaces would cost you, uh, either to your interface vendor or to your EHR vendor. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell what the, the rule as proposed would, uh, would imply for hospitals. Um, we uh, we're on the patient ping side. We're, we're keeping pretty close uh, tabs on this rule, and we have a website that is listed here where we are sharing our learnings and uh, just to kind of keep everyone up to date and abreast of the latest that's going on. And there are a couple of links in here that you can use to um, to follow how the rule is shaping up. So that was it from my side. Uh, back to you, Anthony. All right, very good. Let me get us back where we need to be. And we are going to have our fun Q&A, and we've got Dr. Halamka back with us. Thank you, thank you very much for that presentation, Sognik. Appreciate that. Appreciate your sponsorship today. All right, Dr. Halamka. Okay, here we go. Um, the first uh, comment question I'll, I'll, I'll let you react to. Looks like they're looking for a little clarification here. 
Commonwealth Health Alliance and the eHealth Exchange are networks that will connect via the Care Quality Framework, which is working in conjunction with Sequoia as the RCE. Commonwealth and Care Quality are not similar things, as in they are not both networks. Uh, does that work for you in terms of a clarification, Dr. H? Of course, right? So, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, let me... Let me just take a stab at this, and this is where, of course, Anthony, I love the crowdsourcing input here, that <laughs> Sequoia has long worked on data use agreements and policies and been a convener. Care Equality, which originally was part of Sequoia, which spun out, is now really writing more implementation guidance for standards, and it's really becoming, as you say, it's not a network, but it provides a level of technical detail and implementation guidance that is even beyond what Sequoia has done as a convener and as a policymaker. And so CARE uh, Commonwealth Alliance is a thing, right? It has a master patient index and it has the capacity to physically exchange data. So I know all these pieces and parts are confusing, but if you say Sequoia makes policy, that CARE Equality writes standards and implementation guides, and Commonwealth Alliance moves the data through actual infrastructure and software. That, that's, I think, a reasonable statement of truth. Okay. Uh, one more on that topic. Sequoia Project oversees administration of both the eHealth Exchange and Care Quality. Now, as the RCE, how will the development of TEFCA and the QHIN technical framework Mutually accomplished by care quality, Commonwealth, etc. Right. So again, I think these moving parts are sometimes confusing to understand. But my understanding is Sequoia is really serving as an expert, independent entity. Given all of its experience over the years with the Nationwide Health Information Network or eHealth Exchange and the spinning out of care quality of helping decide what makes a good qualified health information network. You know, I think we would all agree, you know, do they have a rigorous uh, data governance policy? Do they have a good security program? Do they have appropriate staffing and infrastructure to ensure reliability and trustworthiness? So I just think of them as They've been there, they've done that. They are now an independent entity treating all qualified health information networks equally and giving them a validation and stamp of approval when they demonstrate competence. All right, very good. I think, I think we've uh, covered that enough. It's uh, <laughs> a lot going on there, right? Some, uh, some fun terms. Um, can you discuss the ONC's Fire at Scale Task Force effort? Also, you know, we've got an acronym there, which is FAST. Uh, can you speak to how you see these proposed regulations impacting managed medical assistance plans in Medicaid? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just real quick on sequitur. Uh, in my various roles as a policymaker and convener, I am often stopped in hallways and asked questions like, well, I'm a part-time nurse practitioner working as a nurse anesthetist at a federally qualified health center, part-time and weekends across two states. How does the regulation apply to me? <laughs> and I will be very honest, Anthony, for the question that was just asked, could you email it to me? And could Absolutely. I have the benefit of doing a little bit of research? because uh, yeah, I'm familiar with some of this, but I don't really want to opine without digging a bit more into it. Uh, that is extremely fair, and I will do that. So we will get that done. Um, here's, here's one that's fairly manageable. Why, are you, why do you feel we will never have a national patient ID? You have just asked a marvelous question, Anthony, and that one I can't answer. So in my 40 countries that I visited this year, how many countries have national at-birth issued IDs? The answer is every one of them. <laughs> and why? It's because they decided that care coordination 
is very challenging unless you understand who the patient is. But these are societies that are small, and these are societies that are homogeneous. So when I take a country like Denmark or Norway or Finland, there are five million people, and they said, oh, well, all of us have the same language, and we're culturally the same, and we think this is all good. Take a country as diverse as the United States, right? We are a melting pot. So getting us to all agree upon a common policy across 330 million people is just much harder. And there's a spectrum of opinion on issues of privacy. Some would say, I think I want a national health care ID, an issued number, so that my, care, my records could be exchanged and coordinated and I'll get the best possible quality. Others would say, I actually worry that my data, if under a single number, might be commingled in ways that I don't want. And so we have to respect the spectrum of policy and preference. So what I've seen over um, multiple presidential administrations, so remember Bill Clinton signed an executive order prohibiting any funding through HHS for even the debate and discussion of a national healthcare identifier because of concerns about privacy. And that rider was renewed actually in every budget for the last, you know, until two years ago. It was actually part of the budget process. So now you're right, that rider's no longer there. And lots of folks are thinking through this. I was asked by the Pew Charitable Trust to bring together 100 stakeholders in government, academia, and industry to discuss the best path forward. And generally what they said was the political barriers to a at-birth issued single government healthcare identifier are high, as well as implementation logistics and such. But we think we can come up with a nationwide strategy and that's politically tenable and achievable. So let's start with that. So I, you know, I think maybe and then the answer is it's just given diversity of political thinking and the, the diversity of our country, you know, it's at least over the next 20, 30 years, hard to imagine we're going to have a government-issued single ID, but we will have a strategy. Unless you think that issuing a government ID is that hard, well, I don't know, uh, Anthony, have you uh, ever been to an airport and decided that TSA pre-check is a good idea because the lines are shorter? Yeah, I like that. I like pre-check. Yeah. So what did you do? You agreed to give up your privacy, which was your demographics and your passport and potentially a biometric, your fingerprints, because mm -hmm. you wanted convenience, but it was voluntary. So maybe I answer the question by saying, after we as a society come up with a strategy, might we then next offer a voluntary ID? If I tell you it will improve quality and reduce cost, but it's up to you, yeah, maybe we can get there. I just don't think a mandatory healthcare ID is likely in the next decade or two. All right, very good. I think I'm going to make this uh, next question the last one. Um, so here's the question. So uh, as I was looking through your slide for today's your slide deck for today's event, um, decided to do a word count on the word burden. Uh, because it kept coming up, and we know that it's a huge theme of, of what's going on from policy point of view, attempting to reduce the burden, especially on physicians. So my, uh, it came up nine times, nine times the word burden is used in your deck. So a couple of questions, uh, two-part question. Do you believe that the efforts to reduce the burden on physicians will be effective and if you, um, you know, for the CIOs who are out there and other IT executives who have uh, interacted with very frustrated clinicians at their health systems, can they take some of this back as messaging to say, well, they're working on this, they're working on this. So will it be effective? Do you think, and do you feel like there's proper measures to measure the effect, right? We need measures to measure the effectiveness of our attempt to reduce the number of measures, um, if that makes sense. So your thoughts there. Uh, so why is this an urgency? I'm told 
and you know, I don't have specific data, but here's what I'm told, that when a physician leaves a practice, the cost to the organization is about $10,000 because of the investment in training and the productivity loss as a transition occurs. And I'm told that 50% of clinicians in America today want to quit. They want to reduce the administrative burden. They didn't go to medical school to be data entry clerks. They went to medical school to care for patients. So if organizations are seeing this overwhelming dissatisfaction compounded by physician transition costs, they'll want to, as CIOs and CEOs and CFOs and CMOs and COOs think about it, prevent physician dissatisfaction. And so they're going to look to products in the marketplace that can do that, and they're going to look to government to be a partner in reducing some of the causes of the burden. I'm seeing so many entrepreneurs who are from their clinician colleagues being told that products and services are needed, create new ways to reduce burden through more automated entry of some of this data we've been talking about. Um, I've been a mentor to the Mass Challenge Accelerator for the last three years. We just went through 60 pitches a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of those products are all about making the day of the life of the physician easier. So this combination of forces, which is fear of economic loss and physician dissatisfaction, novel products being introduced to the marketplace and urgency to solve the problem, I think is going to result in a lot of forward progress. And I actually believe that the future in the not so distant couple of years will be components surrounding the electronic health record that enable doctors and nurses and patients to interact with much more usable interfaces, much more value-added products that layer on the EHR are not necessarily the EHR itself. And that's a trend that's unstoppable. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today regarding continuing education. Uh, you get one CEU towards the CHIME CHCIO program. Uh, if you uh, have that credential, so let Chime know you were here. You were here, and if you ask us to do so, we certainly will. If you need a certificate of attendance for a different CEU program, you can use the final slide in this deck. You'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready. And if you'd like to sponsor one of our upcoming events or book a custom event, you could reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and go to our website to register for any upcoming webinars. So with that, I want to thank our speakers, Dr. John Halamka and Sagnik Bhattacharya. I want to thank our sponsor, Patient Ping, uh, who's obviously very active in helping people deal with some of the regulations coming down the pike here for uh, sponsoring this and supporting this event today. And I want to thank you, our attendees, for continuing to join our events. So with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.